Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19, and most importantly, to your questions on a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest, your guide, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. You know, I thought, uh, since there are not massive news developments, we could start with a, a question about you. Uh, how much exposure will you be risking uh, in, during the upcoming holidays? Well, we decided to take a little risk this, uh, this uh, Thanksgiving. We're going to fly back tomorrow to visit our daughter and her family in D.C. Um, so, and there will be about 10 or 11 people in the household. So we are taking some risk, but we also want to be with our family over Thanksgiving. So we're also taking precautions. And that is, we're going to wear an N95 mask in the airport, in the airplane, and hopefully everybody will do a, a rapid test uh, at least the day that everybody arrives, which would be tomorrow. And sending out the word to not show up for dinner if you're showing anything that might be a symptom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the way, the way that um, I look at this is that I'm going to get on the plane, I'm going to be in the airport, I'm going to be with others, and I don't want to get infected, but I also don't want to infect them. So I'm going to take the same precautions for myself that I want to take for others. Uh, so that's, I think, a good axiom for what to do to just make every, everybody safer over this holiday vacation. On that note, I should mention uh, that as of today, the federal government has uncorked another batch of free COVID tests, home COVID tests that you can order through the mail. Uh, the order form is at covidtests.gov. They are sending out an additional four tests per household through the U.S. Postal Service. Again, that's covidtests.gov. All right, uh, let's get into the questions. We have a lot about prevention and precautions, as you might expect going into the holidays. Uh, we have some others about the course of and long-term consequences of the disease. Let's start with tools for not getting COVID. Derek in Mill Valley writes to ask, my daughter, her husband, and my two teen grandkids use Norizite nasal spray when traveling. Uh, I looked this up. It is uh, one of the nasal sprays that is not FDA approved in the United States, but purports to create a, a barrier in your nasal cavity that prevents the virus from landing where it can infect cells. Uh, Derek continues, so far, no COVID among them so far. Is this what I understand to be a simple barrier effective? Well, I think the operative word here is what he said, and that was purports. The data on it is slim. There is some data that, that does suggest that it may block the entrance of the virus into our cells, at least in our nasal passages and perhaps in the back of the throat. But it's not real firm yet. And so I think that counting on that is not a wise choice 
at least counting on that alone, but adding that to everything else you're doing, which has been shown to prevent getting infected, that is especially the N95 mask worn correctly, um, has been shown clearly to prevent not only getting infected, but if you are infected, infecting other people. So I would look at norazide as maybe an adjunct. The data is just too soft to really know for sure at this point. It does raise an interesting question about the level of data required for approval. Uh, This has basically been approved for use in in some other countries. It's not a drug, right? it's, It's purporting to be a physical barrier, presumably that the safety is pretty documentable. Um, do, do you think our review system is a little too like ossified when it comes to things like this? That's a tough question. Uh, with Norazite per se, I've looked at the literature. It's, there's not much of it in terms of good science. So I'd say that assessing its mm. safety is, it is a drug in the sense that it is operating to prevent you from getting infected. So assessing its safety uh, is pretty easy, and I think I haven't seen anything to suggest a problem. Again, there's not a robust literature about that. I think the area of real question is efficacy. Um, There's just very, very slim data to support it. Um, The data that there is is encouraging, but there's very slim data. So I'd say in this case, the FDA is not dragging its feet. Okay. Uh, We'll go on to a question about masking from Darian, who asks, I have no reason uh, to know why, who asks about cloth masks. Uh, Darian notes that they have not seen any that are rated N95. However, they're wondering when a cloth mask has multiple layers and is well fitted, uh, is it effective at preventing the breathing in of COVID virus? Yeah, unfortunately, the simple answer is no, it's not. And the the reason why is one word, and it's called electrostatic. Well, it's actually two words, electrostatic forces. When the N95 mask, the KN95 mask, the KF94 mask, they all have the way the way the fibers are put together and the type of fibers, they have electrostatic forces. So not only is it much more difficult for the virus to get through from the air into your nose and mouth, than it would be with a cloth mask, even a cloth mask with multiple layers. But the electrostatic forces in those masks trap the virus onto the those fibers so you, they don't come in. That's why they're so much more effective than a cloth mask. Multiple cloth masks, or at least a cloth mask, is probably better than nothing. Um, I look back, and I was wearing a cloth mask like everybody was early on in in, this, in the um, late winter and spring of 2000, and we now know they weren't really very effective at all. Um, so if you want to wear a mask, wear one that works. Right. And I think it's probably worth recalling that at that point in the pandemic, the theory about how masks might help with transmission was based on the idea that it was primarily through droplets coming out of your mouth and nose, relatively large globules of moisture and virus that would like fall to the earth and land on surfaces uh, within about a six foot radius of your body. And subsequent research demonstrated that it was in fact aerosols, uh, the virus being kind of suspended in the air, which, which kind of changes your theory of what 
barriers you would need to stop it from spreading. That's right. You know, I would say one of the biggest mistakes that we made early on in the pandemic was assuming that this virus transmitted much like influenza. And the problem, there were two major problems with that. One is our understanding of how influenza transmits in terms of droplets versus airborne where it stays in the air a long time and goes considerable distances. Our understanding of how influenza transmits isn't as strong as we would like. And the second problem was the assumption that it spread like influenza was only an assumption. It wasn't based upon solid science. And when we looked at it much more critically, which we did, of course, during the early part of the pandemic, but um, that information wasn't disseminated well to public health and to um, to the public uh, for a number of months. And we lost a lot of people to getting COVID at that period because of that. So I, I think it's a good lesson for, for uh, scientists, for the public, and for just everybody. And that is, uh, when something brand new comes along, like SARS-CoV-2, no human being experienced it until the fall of 2019. When something brand new comes along, don't make any assumptions. Start from the basics again. I remember that um, I was contacted by physicists at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. They're physicists who, who focus their work on airborne uh, products, uh, airborne particles. And they were adamant about the fact that all the evidence suggested that this was airborne and not droplets. And they were telling people, they were telling me that um, by February of uh, 2020. So I think that um, that 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 was a real mistake that that we all made. All right, at this point, we'll open up the phone lines to your questions for Dr. Schwartzberg. It's 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls. Um, next question comes from Elizabeth, who also wrote into our email, coronacalls at kpfa.org. She recovered from COVID about six weeks before she is planning to travel on December 20th. So she is wondering if she should get the latest vaccine, which she has not yet, before traveling or just rely on the immunity from her recent bout of illness? Yeah, that's a great question. Here's how I would do the calculus. Um, she's going to be traveling, so she's going to be putting herself at a higher risk. So she wants to optimize her immunity. On the one hand, um, she's going to have very good immunity from her infection six weeks ago, or it will be six weeks when she travels. So she should have very good immunity from the, from the infection. On the other hand, if she got a COVID vaccine two weeks before leaving, which would be four weeks after her infection, it would boost her a little bit, but not as much as if she waited a few more months to get the vaccine. Getting it too early, you don't get as much bang for the buck. I think that she can count on very good immunity from her previous infection that will be six weeks before she leaves. So I, I would, if I was doing the calculus, I would argue I, I wouldn't get the vaccine at that point. I would wait um, and get it at least three to four months after that episode that she had. You know, the, the parameter we don't have defined in Elizabeth's question is how long she's traveling for. But if we said for the sake of speculation that this was a long trip, 
like a month or two, um, how, how long would you be comfortable relying on the immunity she had from that infection? Um, well, you know, when, yeah. when would it make sense to get a vaccine for a longer trip? Yeah, uh, good point. I was just assuming that this was over Christmas and New Year's, but um, if, if it was a several months trip, it would take her out, it would put her into that three to four month period of time where she would get a pretty good response from the booster. I think also in the calculus then is how much risk will she be in during that trip? Uh, will she be doing a lot of things that put her at considerable risk? Another factor to put in the calculus is what what would how great a risk is getting COVID to her? That is, is she elderly? Does she have underlying conditions that would predispose her to a bad outcome? If the answer is yes to the, one of those two things, then I would tilt towards getting the vaccine. Um, again, getting it at, at six weeks, she'd actually want to get it at four weeks after she had COVID. She's not going to get much of an effect from that. Um, so I, I'm still on the on the fence here. I think I would probably not get the vaccine and just uh, tell Elizabeth to take all the precautions she can, which do really work, especially wearing a good mask. I think we can squeeze in one more email question before we uh, finish teeing up the callers on our lines at one eight hundred nine five eight nine zero zero eight. Uh, let's take a question from Jonathan, who says, Dr. Schwartzberg, I tested positive on November 7th. I'm still testing positive as of Sunday evening, which is 13 days later. Uh, Jonathan notes elsewhere in this email that he took a course of Paxlovid. Is there any research that shows a correlation between the duration of testing positive and complications like long COVID or cardiovascular events? What an interesting question. Um, I, Jonathan, I haven't um, seen any literature that suggests that if you continue to test positive after 10 days, 12 days, 14 days, that that correlates with a more serious outcome with COVID, like developing long COVID. Um, so I, I don't think we have any any solid data to to really answer that question. Um, again, I haven't seen anything to suggest that. Most most studies seem to sort uh, illness by severity of illness, not duration of illness. That's right. Um, there is a, there is a correlation. We're not sure how strong it is, but there clearly is a correlation between how severe your illness is acute illnesses with COVID and the chances of developing long COVID and how severe long COVID might be. So there is somewhat of a correlation there. Let's go to our phone lines. Let's start here in Berkeley where Mary is on the line. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Thank you for the program. Always. I'm interested in Paxlovid. I um, contract, contact, contracted uh, um, uh, the, the disease last summer took Paxlovid. It seemed to be wonderful. Now, um, for someone who gets it now, um, is there any uh, caution about having to... Hold on, I'm on the phone. Um, 
is there any precaution about not taking it after the symptoms had already been shown for five days or more? I saw on the internet that it said up to, up to seven days after symptoms begin if approved by or recommended by a doctor. Well, Mary, the the studies that we base our recommendations on really went out to five days. They didn't go longer than that, at least the robust studies. So we don't have good data to answer that question. We know that um, if you take it within five days, the medication appears to be very helpful for most people. Beyond that, we just don't have enough data to make that statement. So I think what you read about, well, what if it's seven days since your symptoms began or you or the day you tested positive, whichever came first. Um, that is that is a situation where you may want to, you should talk with your, your physician. The reason I say that is because your physician can take more into consideration than just these broad advisories by the FDA for the general public. That is, if you're somebody who has underlying conditions that would make COVID worse for you or might make COVID worse for you, um, if your age is such, if you're elderly, then those things would probably argue that, well, you know, seven days, there's no harm in doing that. It just may not be effective or as effective. And your physician may advise you to go ahead with that. On the other hand, if you're somebody who's not particularly at high risk, where uh, the, the role of Paxlovid is less important, still important, but less important, um, your physician may say, you know, it's probably not worth your while. So that's a, a conversation you need to have with your physician. And Dr. Sportsberg, I, I think it's worth talking about that that five day window. It it's not strictly binary, right? The the data that was collected on administering Paxlovid within five days showed there was more benefit the earlier you started the course of medicine. That's right. You know, very little is binary. Um, everything is on a bell-shaped curve. seems like everything in life is on a bell-shaped curve. And so that's where these questions that we want an absolute answer for often are much more nuanced, and one can't give an absolute answer. And that's why you need to have a good relationship with your healthcare provider. All right, uh, let's move to Berkeley's neighbor for our next call. Miles is on the line in Oakland. Good morning, Miles. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm wondering if either you are familiar with the Pfizer data dump that was mandated by the lawsuit brought on by uh, Informed Consent Action Network. I am not. Because uh, I was it reading a bit of that um, because uh, <clears throat> the FDA tried to close the uh, the the Pfizer data for 75 years and I can sue them and they, a judge ordered them to release it all in two years. And one of the, one of the disclosures, uh, Pfizer said in the first 10 weeks of the rollout of the vaccine, it was the deadliest drug known to man. And uh, so I'm just curious, why is this vaccine, why are you guys still pushing this vaccine? 
<laughs> that sounds extraordinarily implausible, Mike Miles. I'm sorry. If you want to, if you want to send us a link uh, at Corona Calls at KPFA.org, we we can take a look at what you're looking at and maybe try to give you um, a response. But <laughs> the majority of the population of this country has received this vaccine. Um, <laughs> we're the deadliest in the history of humanity. Um, I, I think you would see quite a body count that, that you are not, in fact, seeing. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg? I can't say it any better than you did. All right. Um, let's go to the North Bay next. We've got William on the line in Napa. Good morning, William. Uh, good morning. Uh, in some ways, it kind of seems like we're looking at the pandemic in the rearview mirror. My question is, um, how dangerous is the current coronavirus compared to earlier? So if a unvaccinated person were to be exposed today, would it be as deadly for them or as dangerous for them as it would have been if two, two years ago, say? Thank you. Sure. Yeah, I think, William, William sure. I think you're, you're right. The, the vast majority of people in this country and the world are really looking at at the pandemic in the rearview mirror, that's how human beings are looking at it. Whether the virus is going to um, behave like it's in the rearview mirror or not is still a question mark. That said, um, your question is interesting. It, and it's a little hard to tease out because there's, there's two things going on here. One is the virus, and is, has it become more serious if you get it or less serious? And the other is the immune status. And the immune status of our population, close to 96% of the American population has immunity to this virus, either by previously being infected or getting the vaccine. So it may be the background of immunity to the population is what's making this virus less severe in, in humans. Or it may be, as you pointed out, it may be in people who've never been vaccinated and never had COVID, which is a very small group. Um, maybe the virus itself is a little less what we call virulent or makes us a little less sick than, for example, uh, Alpha did and Delta did. The answer is probably a combination of those two things. Clearly, background immunity is giving our population an enormous amount of protection. But also there's evidence that the viruses themselves, that is the Omicron family and the current subvariants of Omicron that are circulating, appear to be less virulent than certainly Delta during that terrible summer of 2021. Um, so uh, I think the answer is probably both. I would, if I had a choice, I would rather get Omicron than um certainly Alpha or Delta and some of the other variants that we had earlier on in the pandemic. So it does appear that the virus has swung a little bit towards being less virulent. All of this is relative, of course. This virus, even, even if it is less virulent, there's a strong evidence that this virus is certainly a more serious health risk to human beings than influenza, which is a serious health risk to human beings. So it's not a benign virus by any stretch. But your question is important, and I think the answer is that there's that I think that the it's likely that the virus itself is less virulent than it was earlier on in the pandemic. There's no promise that it's going to continue to evolve that way, so we have to wait and see. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, I'm I'm 
actually a little curious about how hedged that statement is, uh, because for a long time, public health statistics were published on, on outcomes from infections based on vaccination status. Um, doesn't that give us some kind of indicator about the, the you know, mortality uh, induced by the virus in the immunologically naive population? Absolutely. Um, we, we know with as, as close to certainty as we can get that if, you're, if, you're, if you have immunity to this virus, either by vaccine or previous infection, that your risks of being hospitalized and dying are far less than if you don't have immunity to the virus. So the, I don't think there's any question there. Where the question really is, is whether the virus itself is a little less virulent. And, you know, I think that's an interesting question, but it's not a practical question for us. And the reason I'm saying that is because even if it's a little less virulent than some of the some of the variants that were circulating previously, it's still a very serious virus. People tend to think, though, it's nothing more than a cold now. For a lot of people, that's all it is. But it's more serious than influenza. And frankly, influenza has always frightened me. Hmm. All right. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, we'll leave it for there this week. Thank you for spending another Monday with us. You're welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.